What's up, fellow fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And we also have returning special guest, Joshua Harkey. He's back with us again today. What's up, Josh? Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can't get rid of me that easy. No, no, we're yeah. going we're gonna to have you locked in for at least a couple more episodes. You can be certain of that. And um, before we begin, I need to give a shout-out to two gentlemen by the names of Chris Martin and Bill Gibson, both of whom have joined the ranks of our loyal Patreon subscribers. So thank both of you gentlemen. And um, yeah, let's get down to what you're paying for. So, Drew, would you kindly give us a recap? What happened in Oathbringer Part 2? Yeah. So, as usual, uh, with our part twos, we got our first set of interludes. And this time, we had Pooley, the uh, Natan lighthouse keeper, who seems to think that there's a mysterious, perhaps magical invasion coming from the origin sometime soon, which is something we'll need to keep an eye on in the future. And then we have Elista, the Ardent, who is apparently very, very good at translating the Dawn Chant, but also super into romance novels. And, uh, you know, we we got a, a few amusing scenes with her, as well as some groundwork laid for the future. And then from there, we go to Venli, our recurring interlude character in this book. And we have the... Death of many, many theories from after Words of Radiance as she descends into the chasms with Ulim, the Void Spren, and discovers the dead body of Eshronai. Yes, Eshronai is dead. From there, we head back on into the main, the main uh, current timeline story where we have a lot more of Shalon. We have the return of Yasna and uh, a new dynamic between them as Shalon is is figuring out how to balance her newfound independence with remaining Yasna's ward. I mean, she's really struggling with that. But she's also taking her newfound independence to establish Vale as a persona more and to start training up her uh, <laughs> deserter troop that she acquired in Words of Radiance. Um, but yeah, and then we, we have a little bit of Kaladin, but really not much. Most of the focus around Kaladin in this part is actually Bridge 4. We have points of view from several of them, including Relaine, Rock, Scar, Teft, and even Moash. In fact, we have a lot of Moash in this, in this portion, as he has been captured by the Voidbringers, by the Fused, and is forced to become a slave with them until his passion and uh, just his general unruliness gets the attention of a particular Fused named Leshwi, who frees him as a slave and uh, gives him the power over his own future. Uh, And then our other main storyline in this area is with Dalinar, as he is trying so hard to forge his coalition of uh, monarchs across Roshar, where he was stymied at first by Queen Fen and by the um, the Azish 
Prime, who we know as Gox, or Yanagon, as he is now known. Uh, in this part, Dalinar starts bringing them into visions, because the Stormfather can do that now. <laughs> or apparently could do it the whole time. And he starts making some inroads, at, at least with Queen Fen. But when he does it with Gox, an interloper shows up. Our very favorite character, Rob's favorite character, Lift. Hey. <laughs> so who pulls, pulls Gox out of the vision. But that's not the last vision that Dalinar goes into. And the last one that he does go into in this uh, part is interrupted by a different loper. Uh, interloper. <laughs> loper. Wow, I, was, I, I got loping on my mind. Just don't even, <laughs> don't even worry about it. Um, a different kind of interloper in this you know, in this story. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah an altogether new character on the page for the very first time, the Shard Odium. So, shall we dive into style? Yeah, I have a few things in particular I want to talk about with style. Um, first, I suppose, it's probably the biggest one, so I guess we'll just jump right into it to get this out of the way. I want to discuss the manner in which Brandon approaches writing about more exigent issues, you know, in his completely foreign, epic world and narrative. And I'm sure everybody picked up on a lot of that, um, as well as the, the light humor that it deserves, you know, during a lengthy interaction between Kaladin and Sigzil. In chapter 35, mm -hmm. First Into the Sky, we've got both parties having the opportunity to, to call out one another for unconscious, but you know, no less insulting, all said and done, prejudices that they still hold. The fact that Sigzil thinks it's his place to confront you know, their superior officer about matters like a colleague's sexual preferences, as, as well as, you know, Kaladin's complete inability to consider that women who want to try out for the Society of the Windrunners might be planning on doing something more than scribing and sketching. I thought, like, both of these, these prejudices playing off of one another and the, the tiny bit of almost friendly conflict that they have, you know, I, I, I figured it worked for me. He Brandon doesn't approach it in a way that makes a positive or neg negative final stance on either issue. He just lays down some conflicting viewpoints, and then he lets us laugh at the chemistry that results, and I quite enjoyed it. It's a theme that yeah. comes up in a lot of these, um, pretty much all the Bridge 4 chapters, I think. Just different cultures clashing, and these different people with all these different backgrounds mixing together. Um, I mean, even with Moash, you see him, you know, uh, being kind of thrust in some different circumstances with different people than he's than he's used to, or or old yeah, people that he that. was used to, and it's it's an interesting theme, I guess, that's explored in these chapters. Yeah, so there have always been topical themes present in the Stormlight Archive, but in this particular part, in part two of Oathbringer, they are much less subtle. They are brought directly to the front. Themes of, you know, sexuality, themes of colonialism and uh, and racism and uh, gender norms and things like that are very directly addressed. And I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing that it's not as subtle. Uh, I, I think 
in a way, it's almost something he needed to do because they were so subtle in the way of Kings and Words of Radiance that a lot of readers would probably just gloss over it. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to just read the story and not think about, uh, you know, what it means that we have the Parshmen who are ostensibly, you know, a, a subhuman race, and then you have the Parshendi who are a more sapient and, and more human or more humanized race of people. And, but because we're in this limited third-person perspective where our characters aren't really grappling with it, it's easy to just read through that and not not uh, take the time to engage with it, especially because it's an uncomfortable topic. And, and so I, I think it was smart of Brandon to bring this to the forefront here, especially because it is such a central uh, aspect of the Stormlight Archive. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and going on, since we're on a Stormlight book part two, I I feel the obligatory need to bring up the fact that we get another insane Sanderson classic, holy freaking crap moment. And no, those that's not the words that came out of my mouth when I first read it. I'm just dumbing it down a little bit. Right before and leading up to the end of this part where in in words of radiance that was chapter 32 the one who hates in oathbringer it's the final words of the chapter always with you and i have them quoted here dalinar says you're not the almighty are you honor no he truly is dead as you've been told the old man's smile deepened genuine and kindly i'm the other one dalinar they call me odium Oh my god, I dare say that any Alethi whose eyes opened as wide as mine did in that moment would probably spend the rest of their lives looking shin. You know? How badass is that chapter ending? It's, it's, like, how unnerving is it to be set up for this splendor and even comfort? We get the description of this regal man who's described as genuine and kindly with his smile, only to have this other part of your brain that's finally catching up and is starting to contextualize the actual horror of what's happening. I thought it was such a masterful move. I mean, at this point, Brandon is so good, he's just showing off. And I love it. I want more of this. I want all of this. It's it's just so good, you know? It's one of my favorite things that Brandon always finds ways to just completely blow you away with something that you just did not expect. Um, I mean, who, who predicted that odium would show up in Oathbringer part two, right? Like most people were thinking like, most people were thinking like maybe he'll show up like in book five or something. Right. Yep. But, but no, he just shows up casually in not even in part five. He shows up in part two. Um, Yeah. It's it's, it's not part two (laughs) at the end of part two. There needs to be something incredible. I love it. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, I, I brought this up on our Words of Radiance episodes. I remember reading Words of Radiance for the first time and expecting, okay, we're going to have a big showdown with Kaladin and Zeth and Dalinar at the end of Words of Radiance. And then, end of part two, boom, Zeth shows up and we have Ditto. what what we now know is the first of two big showdowns between them. And then at the end of book two, we have the Everstorm, which going into Words of Radiance... I didn't think that was going to come around to like book seven or eight, you know, like 
it's such an apocalyptic event and the way it's described in the first book you're like okay this is some long-term groundwork that brandon's laying here no no next book you know and then and then you know josh like you said you expect odium to to at least show up on the screen way later than this like he's he's such a big piece on the board it would be an insane move on on the author's part to have him show up in book three of ten and yet here he is in the middle of book in three. In the first half. Yeah, like, like not even in the middle of the book in, of book three. It's amazing. <laughs> the balls on this guy. You have to respect that. Mm. Yeah. And, and so. Other style issues before I, something you know, selfishly I've, hog our time. Well, yeah, I just want to say, like, reiterate. The way Brandon Sanderson is pacing this series is... Now I'll say it's not unexpected because I've gotten to read, you know, a few books in. But through the first two and and into the, you know, reading the third book for the first time, it was like, what is going on? (laughs) All the things I expected to happen are happening and we're we're not even halfway through the series yet. Like, so, there, there is... There, there is really something that Brandon is doing specifically with the pacing of this series, and I think it has to do with how much he really views the front five and the back five as like separate stories that are connected by like a unified cast and world. Uh, and it took me a while to really wrap my head around that because I always wanted to think, oh, it's it's one series. This is one big series, and we have our our you know conflict set up in the first book, and we we have our big bad guy, and and we have our our general arc set up. But really, more and more, it's appearing. No, that's just the arc for the first five, and then who knows what's going to happen in the second five? Like the the fact that we're getting things like the Everstorm and, and Odium on the page so early in the series from an author's standpoint, from a writer's standpoint, yeah, it's risky, but also maybe it's not as risky if those aren't necessarily going to be conflicts or plot points by the end of the series. If this is really just stage one of the Stormlight Archive, and we got a whole second stage yet to come that we can't even guess at until possibly, you know, the end, the last couple pages of book five. Who knows? I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really intimidating to consider. It's like, this is what you're pulling out of the bag at this stage in the series. What could you possibly have planned for book five, let alone everything that's supposed to follow after? And I'm just like Drew here. My, my, for the first five years or so, maybe maybe even like seven years or so of reading the Stormlight Archive, I had that same assumption. I kept forgetting that there are two very distinct planned halves of the entirety of the Stormlight Archive. The fact that like all of this is happening in book three, and and I, I especially how this is going to end, the amount of hype that I have for book four, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to even consider. The kind of things that you're going to be reading four books from now, five books from now. It's it, we, I have nothing to go on in that front, and I'm it in a weird way makes me even more excited, you know. 
does it, here's a kind of a different question. Does it also make you nervous? Cause there's, um, I will say kind of the flip side of that maybe is some of my, so like for wheel of time, for example, no spoilers, but some of my favorite stuff in wheel of time is stuff that's set up in book one and doesn't pay off until 14 books later. Um, do you ever feel like Brandon uses his, his, his ideas up too fast and, and doesn't really have enough long-term for any other author besides Brandon Sanderson, sure, yeah, I would. <laughs> but I've, I've been with, yeah, I've, I mean, I've been a, a fan of Sanderson since like oh, it's, it's 2007, 2006, 2007, and so I've seen his ideas grow and grow and grow. I mean, we were supposed to get the Elantris sequel only a few months or a few years after the first one, and here we are, 15 years later. He's added like 25 books to his slate that he hadn't even considered at that point, making that first statement. Somebody with the with the boundless uh, creative energy of Brandon Sanderson, I, I, I have complete trust in, but you're absolutely right. For pretty much any other author I can name alive right now, I would absolutely be having those exact reservations at about this point. Yeah, uh, and I think that ties into how Brandon himself talks about the Stormlight Archive, and, and a lot of the time he frames it specifically with the Way of Kings, where he says... Yes, you can start wherever you want with my books. You can start with Mistborn, you can start with Warbreaker, you can start with Stormlight Archive. But he specifically calls out with with the Stormlight Archive, it's harder to get into, and a big part of it is that you're going to need to trust him. And if you don't already have you know that prior trust from reading a series like Mistborn or or reading Warbreaker, you know, seeing him play a a long game with a satisfying conclusion that especially at the beginning of way of kings it it would be easy to just say this feels aimless this feels like it's it's going to be way way overboard just way too much and i don't think this guy can pull it off but you know, if you've read his other stuff, you have that trust, and and especially with Mistborn, man, the the way he's handled Mistborn Era One and Era Two, that gives me the confidence that he can not only pull off a long term plot, but he could pull off a long term plot with a second stage to it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, do you guys have any more style points? I have three, uh, yeah. But I'm I've also brought the first few to the to the front, and I don't want to to you know do all of mine at once. I'll give Josh the opportunity to. Uh, Here's get one to, out of the way. Yeah, to take it back to Bridge Four a little bit, actually. Um, I I think it's interesting that um, this is the first time we've seen the the Bridge Four POV, right? That you start off and it's like not just like one of your main POV characters who's really driving and so um i don't mm-hmm. curious what you guys thought about that i really i really love it i don't know i i love the opportunity to see all these different characters i thought that was kind of a, a clever way to kind of thematically tie things into together but at the same time give you a lot of different characters um on the other hand i know some people get frustrated by the larger cast of pov characters and wish it was more focused yeah i i really like it and uh, I'm glad you brought this up because this was going to tie into one of my style points, and that was how, at the beginning of each part, 
we have a a kind of a an art title page and on that page it lists who our point of view characters will be and this one just says bridge four you know we got down Shalon bridge four and i loved that little touch because it, it brings with it a sense of excitement and it allows him to do something clever even further beyond that and that is with the chapter art icons where each time we get one of these bridge four point of views we have this artwork of a the shoulder of a man in uniform with the bridge four patch and then we get to moash chapters and we have that same man with the uniform but the patch is ripped off i and, did not even catch that yeah oh it's it's <laughs> It's pretty dang good. <laughs> it's pretty wow. dang good. And, yeah. and and yeah, and so getting getting all the different perspectives, I like it a lot because for one thing, it helps recontextualize the Windrunners, where it's not just Kaladin. He's he's not our only Windrunner, our our only Night Radiant of this particular type that we should care about, and it also gives us examples of how the progression of Knights Radiant uh, the progression of Knights Radiant isn't always the same right we we see some flexibility growing where certain people take to it immediately as squires and then some some people like uh, Scar for instance he has his own route to it Lynn has her own route to it things like that and we see individual struggles how Brandon takes the time to really build these characters and make even side characters dynamic and give them opportunities for growth instead of just having them be, oh, he's he's the the funny cook. He's the the wisecracking one-armed guy. You know, like they they all get they all get to be round characters. Hmm. And I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. No, if you if you had told, you know, the the Rob Santos who first began the way of kings and fell in love with the way of kings um back when i was 20 years old or, or even like 19 18 years old i if you had told me then that we'd have an entire section a significant portion of the book where we don't get any caladin Stormblast at all it's just we, we he's still there but he's we have no points of view from him i would have said oh that kind of sucks you know because that was my favorite character at that point but it wasn't until i really appreciated the stormlight archive as a whole if I still can do even that, you know, three, four books in, that I, I realized that this is just, it's its a mark of such good writing. I mean, Brandon is branching out and he's approaching telling us this story through the eyes of, as you said, as both of you have mentioned, Bridge 4. We, we have points of view from Sigzil, from Rock, and from Relaine, and each of those viewpoints gives us all of this insight to their actual personality and how they truly feel about everything that's happening around them and everyone that they surround themselves with. We learn, we can see that Sigzil is, you know, a failed scholar who has severe insecurity issues that result. Um, and he's, he does have some rather unflattering opinions, you know, that he, that he voices about civic duty. We see that Rock is a genuine, insightful, and caring friend who exists solely to support his family and friends. He's a man with a heart that's even bigger and stronger than he is himself. And Relaine, you take Relaine kind of it was a tough read for me. He's he's a jaded, emotionally scarred 
underdog who's who's struggling to reconcile his condemning experience with humanity at large with you know the, the, these thoughtful well-intentioned but still not innocent men that he's grown to love in their own right you know brandon is doing the kind of character work that i will only hope to be able to imitate <laughs> someday and I, it's it's absolutely wonderful it's just a pleasure to read all said and done yeah, it, it is pretty incredible to see how he can take such a wide cast and give them a, at least varying levels of of deepness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy yeah. to create real people, much less dozens of real people to populate your stories. Yeah, I mean... Kaladin has, and I didn't, I didn't realize this until it occurred to me to check right before we started recording today. Here, in part two, we get zero viewpoints from Kaladin. Yeah. We see him many a time, but we actually get zero points of view from him. I didn't realize that until like today, you know. And I'm kind of more impressed for it. It's cool that you get to see him through all the eyes of these other, other people. You get to see him the way that all these other Bridge Four characters see him. Um, I, I really like the way that through like a single chapter you can give so much life and voice to these characters that it's it's just such an amazing investment because now through the rest of the of the book the rest of the series you kind of this kind of plays into who they are to you and it just kind of gives them so much more life you know even if we never get another sigil pov or another rock or scar or whoever you know we don't get these povs ever again like that one time you had it really fleshed them out in a re, in a neat way that goes with you the rest of the series, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have one last style point, um, and if you guys have any more, we can we can touch on those before we go into characters. But uh, as much as I am kind of glowing about some of uh, Brandon's character work in this part and and some of his you know subtle style things he's done, I do think this is the weakest part of the book. And I think it's because it's generally unfocused. And that is the the problem with the disparate points of view from Bridge 4. Where in part one of this book, we have a, a pretty solid backbone of a mini arc. With the mysteries of Urethiru, the establishment of the uh, investigation into the murders culminating in the showdown with the Midnight Mother and the, the cleansing of Urethiru. We don't have something like that in this part. This is a very transitory section of the book where everything at the beginning of it is in response to what happened in part one and then is setting up what's going to happen in part three. And there's no unifying storyline to part two. Whereas in part three and part four and part five, we will get those unifying storylines. And so while... Brandon does some really cool things with character work here. It it does lose some focus as a result. I very strongly agree. I don't I don't accept well, I don't know that I feel that it's necessarily because of the decision to do like the bridge four thing. I think you could have a bridge four sequence that still has a strong cohesive story to it. Um sure. but I do this is probably my least favorite Stormlight part. Um, is Oathbringer Part 2, I think. There's some really fantastic highs that happen. There's really some really great scenes, some really great chapters. But as a whole, I, I really agree that there's there's not a lot of cohesion. There's not a lot of movement in the story. It really feels like it's set up 
all around. Uh, Bridge four yeah. characters is is all characters set up. Um, Shalon is just sort of you know spinning in circles, trying to figure out what she's doing with her life and not really going anywhere. Um, Dalinar is just sort of progressing with where we left him at the end of part one and doing exactly kind of what you expect him to do until the twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I agree with everything that both of you said, except for the one caveat that I would add. I My least favorite Stormlight book part, I think, is Oathbringer part four. Oh, no. Mm, yeah. I mean, we'll talk I about that. I can't we'll talk about yeah, that in a I'm couple not, weeks. I, but <laughs> Yeah. But, I mean... I, I can see what you're saying. That said, though, I think we still need to add the context. Like, the worst of the Stormlight parts is still a f***ing incredible piece of work. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. said and done. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Um, my last style point is uh, something we touched on very briefly. We kind of walked around it. I just want to focus in on it right now with Teft. And this one point of view, I'm pretty sure it was just the one point of view we got from Teft. Um, and, and what it must have been writing like. Like, like this can't be easy. As um, and I can say, as you know, somebody who's been pretty open about the fact that I have some substance abuse tendencies myself. I mean, I I'm a pretty regular drinker at this point. I'm a pretty dependent drinker, if I'm being honest. It's kind of surreal to read a point of view like we got the one with, out of Teft here, and I can I can tell you, I mean, I just by reading in the first minute, I knew that Brandon wasn't simply doing guesswork here. You know, he's got some real world sources from which to learn about how this condition can really affect a human. Um, psyche, you know, and it's it's a huge part of the reason that I have the respect for Sanderson as a professional, uh, professional more than simply as an artist. I mean, I have enough on that front too, but uh, just the professional work alone and doing the, the necessary homework and asking the right questions and sitting down and treating it with the gravity and respect that it deserves, and especially having such a wide beta group to to and gamma group from which to, to draw opinions on, you know, it, like Teft as a result is this this point of view is heartbreaking and it's perfect, and I think that there is a mark of a of a talented author in and of itself. Yeah, and I do think that is a a good point to make about the the size of the beta group that Brandon Sanderson uses. Uh, and and on top of that, specifically with Oathbringer, uh, I, I'm fairly certain, I'm like 99% certain, unless my mind is really playing tricks on me, this was the book where Brandon's beta support structure really exploded in number. Uh, most of the books before this, it was a fairly self-contained beta, you know, maybe like... 15 to 25, 30 people. But with Oathbringer, there were, at least at the start, there were close to 70 beta readers. And Brandon was really starting to reach out, looking for specific types of beta readers. Uh, Now he's famous, you know, for soliciting fans who have certain types of expertise. I mean, you know, like with uh, Skyward, how he publicly posted and said, hey, if there are any fighter pilots who are fans of my work, Hmm. reach out to me. I want you to be a beta reader on Skyward. Or uh, with the Dawnshard novella that he's been working on, where Risen is a main character. And he said, again, made a public call to his, his fan base, and he said, if there are any... Uh, wheelchair-bound 
uh, fans, specifically paraplegics, I would love for you to be sensitivity beta readers for this story to make sure, you know, that he's getting the details right, that he's that he's telling an authentic story, even though he himself has not experienced these things. And I I know for a fact that he had uh, at least one beta reader for Oathbringer for the Teft kind of uh, experiences. That he had at least one beta reader who gave him serious feedback on what it's like to struggle with this type of an addiction. And I think that is super cool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is super cool. Yeah, that wraps up everything I have to say for style. Yeah, Maybe this is just on my mind because of certain things in the science fiction fantasy zeitgeist with, with certain young adult novels that have come out in the last like week or so in early October um, that have been criticized, not going to name any names, uh, but have been criticized for a, a lack of authenticity in some characters and uh, and then the author turning around and sort of blaming it on her sensitivity readers rather than, you know, owning up to any of it. And I And I really appreciate that Brandon goes out of his way to really cover his bases and and write as authentic an experience as he can. Especially for somebody as busy as he is and whose time is as valuable as his is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I also got to say I really respect that when he gets something wrong, he he owns up to it. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mhm. Mhm. Hmm. All right. Should we dive into our characters? Let's do it. Okay. I mean, if we're going to start with Kaladin, and I will start with Kaladin, because I'm not going to really talk about Kaladin much for this part, for reasons that we just went over a few minutes ago. I, I, there's not a lot that I had opportunity to stop and write down points of discussion for. He's pretty straightforward as a character, and he's still an incredible character, but without any points of view at all from which to actually, you know, get into his head and see where he's where he's going. You know, it is not a lot for us to discuss on this kind of platform, especially some, if, if it's going to be superficial. It, chances are it's something that we've discussed already. So I really don't have anything about Kaladin. What about you guys? Uh, I do. I have I have okay. one specific point, and then I'll, I'll let Josh run with it. Um, and, and that is the idea of Kaladin in Absentia as a point of view character and and just how it goes to show that assumptions a lot of fans make about Kaladin and Brandon's relationship with Kaladin are perhaps not very well founded. How how so many people say, like, oh, Kaladin's his favorite. He's always going to go out of his way to give Kaladin more page time, blah, blah, blah. Look, no. He's, he's writing the stories that he needs to write for these characters. If, if he really loved Kaladin so much like this, Kaladin would have been getting these point of point of view chapters instead of the rest of bridge four in part two like Kaladin would have gotten seven or eight point of views in in this chunk of oathbringer if brandon was really so in love with him but no he doesn't need to spend that page time exploring Kaladin. he needed to spend that page time exploring other characters around Kaladin and what sort of an impact Kaladin has on their lives you know and and it it just 
it feels really short-sighted to me when people criticize Brandon uh, Brandon's point of view decisions because they're they're always they're always failing to take into account the bigger picture. It feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about the fact that he could have done a rock point of view, a Relane point of view, a Teft point of view, uh, and spaced them throughout the course of the entire book. But the fact that he chose to do all of them in one part and obviously exclude Kaladin is a declaration in and of itself. Kaladin is not the only important member of Bridge Four. He has more. To, he, being Brandon, has more to tell. Well, and and if if Brandon wanted, he could have just never done points of view for all of them and just made them all Kaladin points yeah, of view. Of course, yeah. This could well, be the Kaladin archives, and it's just here's the story yeah. of Kaladin. But you know, it's it's he wants to tell an epic story, and it's uh, Kaladin is certainly, I think. Uh, one of his favorite characters. I think he really loves Kaladin. Um, but um, he p- pretty clearly loves all of these characters, I think. And uh, yeah. I think yeah. that shows. Yeah, I was about to say there's no I in Epic, but that would be hardly uh, an accurate thing to say. <laughs> there's no me in but, Epic. Just go that way. <laughs> really, eh? No I had Kaladin. a very <laughs> small Kaladin. Um, I, I, at some point, um, I, I really I took note... Um, when like some light eyes like want to try and join Bridge Four, and he Kaladin's like, we can't let them in. And I I thought it was kind of fun that Brandon doesn't like let this sort of um, bias that Kal- this reasonable bias that Kaladin has it doesn't just kind of evaporate now that he's suddenly sort of light eyes and he's you know, made some peace with Dalinar and things are changing. He doesn't he doesn't just sort of turn that off and you know become mm-hmm. uh, this really uh, I don't know he. I love that that bias is still there, and that's still something that Kaladin's sorting through. Yes, and it also helps that we have the Moash chapters where we have... I mean, mean, let's just be very clear. Like, Moash is a foil for Kaladin. And so when we see Kaladin still struggling with his prejudices toward Light Eyes, and then we move to a Moash chapter where he is just discovering that even among the singers, there is still prejudice you know, and and a uh, a hierarchy of abuse going on there. It, it's it's really deft writing. But on top of that, I loved how specifically in that chapter where a bunch of the light eyes are going to train, we're in Scar's point of view. He's the teacher, right? And he thinks about and makes you know like a small remark to Kaladin about the way Kaladin views light eyes is very, uh, like, monolithic. All Light Eyes are the same. But Scar notes, look, a lot of these Light Eyes here are, like, 6th, 7th dawn, you know, like, they're they're craftsmen, soldiers. Like, they're, they're not nobles. They're not the ones abusing their power. They're just normal people who happen to have Light Eyes, you know. And I, I like that reminder of the stratification of Alethi society because it's so easy to think of Light Eyes as all being Dalinar or Sadius. Hmm. Because so much of our our interaction with the idea of Light Eyes is from Kaladin's very prejudiced point of view. Or or from Dalinar and Shallan who are on the on the higher end of of the Light Eyes spectrum, right? So Exactly. Yeah, we really don't have a lot of points of view from the uh, the the lower Don or the upper Non, do we? I mean, Kaladin's yeah. the obvious example, but yeah. 
and and even like in Kaladin's mind, when you have a, a lower ranking light eyes like Roshone, for instance, Kaladin still lumps him in that same group with these like super wealthy, super powerful. But even though when we really gain an understanding of what Roshone's situation in life is, like no, this guy is like practically destitute for a for a light eyes. You know, he's exiled. He doesn't have much money. Kaladin remarks you know, when he goes back to Hearthstone in part one, how he's like pulling spheres out of his pocket for Stormlight and realizes the stuff I have in my pocket is worth many times what my father and Roshone basically went to war over when I was younger. Like, <laughs> you know, it, so it's, it's good to have these reminders that not all light eyes are just uber wealthy, obnoxious noblemen. Agreed. Agreed. That's everything I, like, I have to say about Kaladin. Like I said, I really didn't write much down at all. I'm ready to go on to Shallan, unless you guys have any other Kaladin points you want to knock out of the way. Oh, let's do Shallan. Okay, so... Phrasing? I, Is that still myself, <laughs> Sorry, did you say? What was that? I, I, I talked over it. <laughs> I said, no, let's do Shallan, and then said, oh, phrasing. Is that still a thing? Oh, yeah, we're still doing phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do Shallan. She's, oh, she's at least at this point, right? Yeah, never mind. Um, anyway. I appreciate that, you know, despite the fact that Shallan lost both of her parents at such a young age, she's still clearly struggling with coming of age and I, I struggled with myself with using that term because you know it, a lot of the times that's an internal conflict a conflict with her it's mostly an external conflict it's with Yasna but I still think it fits when when Yasna returns it for Shallan especially it threatens a lot of the independence as well as the air of control and that she's she's worked so hard to cultivate since Yasna's apparent you know death in air quotes and this friction between the two of them. It's, I mean, it's understandable on both fronts. That's why I like it. We're inside Shallan's head, and we have the context as readers to know that, you know, we, we know everything that that's, she's accomplished. We've been there. We've seen it. But at the same time, it doesn't take a lot of effort to put yourself in Yasna's point of view. On the surface, Shallan is still as delicate. She's as nervous. She's as easily flustered as she ever was, you know? But then she she gets this lifeline. She gets the opportunity to leave once again, and she gets the opportunity to to explore her radiant powers and to use her considerable skills as a spy, or I should say, a burgeoning spy, <laughs> again and for the good. You know, to liberate Kolinar. You know, it, I'm. It's a good Shalon. You know, segment for me. I'm not. I really don't have much to complain about here. So, I can't really complain about it either. Because I I think it works the way Brandon did it, but I wish we got more of this particular internal conflict for Shallan. That we got more of her struggle balancing being a Knight Radiant and being an important person in her own right and being Yasna's ward. Because we only get really like two or three chapters of it and then she's like, oh, I'm off to Kolinar and then... You know, it yeah. it, it kind of gets left by the wayside, and I wish 
yeah, I wish we got more because this is a a conflict that I can appreciate with Shalon. It makes her more uh, sympathetic. A lot of Shalon's internal conflicts are not things I can connect with. <laughs> you know, I have not murdered my own parents. I have not uh, started splintering off aspects of my personality to cope with my inner trauma. You know, a, a lot of this stuff is interesting to me, but it's interesting in a very academic way. Her struggle with her newfound independence versus her uh, feeling of... Like, like her juvenile feeling around Yasna, that is something I can understand. I think a lot of people can understand, you know, going through a certain time of your life where you are stretching your legs as a young adult and, and realizing I can have some semblance of control over my life and make decisions for myself, but also at the same time still having more juvenile responsibilities and, and being beholden to other people in positions of authority over you. So I loved that part of, of Shalon's character arc in this book, and I wish there was more of it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Josh? Shall yeah, I? I don't know. I, um, I, I'm not sure if I would want more of it or not because because it does kind of start to like get tiring to me. Like I want some like – goes back into this thing of like feeling like nothing's happening. And I kind of like want like progress. I want her to like figure something out. Um, I, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it would have frustrated me if it kept going on and on with her not really kind of knowing how to deal with it. I do love – that we get the, the Yasna POVs in there to give us mm-hmm. an external perspective on what Shalon is going through. Um, and I do in particular note, I think it's maybe the second one where Yasna kind of figures that what Shalon really needs is not more rules and structure, but more challenges. I think that's so true to her personality um, that she doesn't want to be stuck inside in the stuffy library studying. She needs to like get outside and like see the world. And you saw that in words of radiance. Like that's her whole character arc is like the way that the, the thing she needed to grow was not sitting in, in inside studying a book, but to be kind of shoved out there and get into the world. Um, she's very hands-on and, um, and Yasna realizes that um, I don't know. I guess it would have been interesting to see a different story where, Shalon was kind of, I guess, put in a different hands-on situation before she was able to, to flee. Um, ultimately, ultimately, though, I think that's almost kind of the point of the story. This is where the direction that Brandon wanted to take the story was Shalon's fear getting the better of her to the point that she needed to run. Um, because that's what she does, right? Uh, when, when things get hard for her, when, when things um, get out of control, she shuts down. She ignores it. She runs away from her problems. Um, so I think it's a very, very true to her character to find a way to not to not to confront these problems that she's dealing with, but to just remove herself from that situation. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really a weird. really good point. I, and, because, and that was what I was going to say next is maybe my frustration isn't necessarily that uh, we don't get more of it but that we don't get a satisfying conclusion to it because she just avoids the whole issue and runs away and and you are right that is shalon's mo (laughs) 
Well, I wouldn't even say so much that it's that she chooses to run away. She chooses to hide in a lot of times, and that's what frustrates me a lot. Um, but going back just a mite to, to what, Josh, you were just saying, you, you, that was a very, very good point to make in what Yasna realized when she we got that point of view from Yasna. She realized she doesn't need more discipline. She doesn't need more rigidity, more structure. She does need challenges. But... And despite the fact that I agree with everything you just said, it's really weird to me, you know, in hindsight that I agree with that because in part three of Words of Radiance, I'm pretty sure it's part three of Words of Radiance, I made a point how I loved Shallan in that part because she was comfortable. She had arrived on the Shattered Plains. She was working for Sabariel. She was exploring her powers. And I had said, like, this, this seemed like very, very fertile narrative ground upon which shallan can grow and i think i said during that episode comfortable shallan is my favorite shallan so i'm really questioning now why i agree with everything you just said because when she finally gets the opportunity to improvise when she has something to do uh, uh, she has a goal focused and she's in the moment and she's improvising as she goes that is the brightest shallan that we see you know what it, you know what it is i just realized what it is it's <laughs> yasna's presence because if Shallan could have been alone at Urethiru, she would have been probably up to a lot of a lot more of her own devices, and maybe I would have found her less constricted as a character, or at least less timid as a character. Because in part three of Words of Radiance, I was all about Shallan, even though she was really moving not at all. I I will say one thing that as you were talking, one thing that came to mind is I'm not sure that I I'm not certain that I agree that she was comfortable. I think she was ex- in in Words of Radiance. I think she was excited. Um, I okay, think she yeah, felt yeah. felt alive with the situation that she was in, and so the, it's easy to mix up comfortable. Uh, That's I fair. guess yeah, yeah. Uh, complacent versus. Um, so there's a distinction there, I guess, that I'm trying to make. It. I think that she just the situation that she in just really was something that gave her. I don't know something she was passionate about, something that she could really enjoy. And, yeah, um, I, I would say there's definitely a distinction between comfortable and complacent. Uh, I, I think in part three, I would, of Words of Radiance, I would describe her as comfortable. Uh, but she's only comfortable because of the work she had to do in part two, right? She has acquired skills and gone through her crucible, so to speak, in part two with Tin and now in part three of Words of Radiance, she gets to apply those skills. And she has confidence in those skills. So she's earned a level of comfort, but she is by no means complacent because she's still, you know, a you know, lone man on an island kind of thing. She She's very out of place among the nobles. You know, she's, she's the one red-haired, backwater... Vedin minor noble among the most powerful, most regal men and women in the world, you know, and and she's trying to find her place there. So she's she's by no means complacent, but she has acquired skills that allow her to find her place. And and here in part two of uh, of Oathbringer. She's not comfortable anymore because those skills she acquired and she has gained comfort with have been upended by the reemergence of Yasna. It's to me, I think a, a big part of it is expectations that people have on her. Yes, um, I think, um, and I wonder if it even you could even say it kind of goes back almost to maybe even her 
family situation growing up. Um, I wonder if she just sort of chafes under having expectations and having boundaries and uh, restrictions on her and, and, you know, pursuing her, her scholarship as something that she's passionate about versus what somebody expects her to do. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in a metaphorical sense, 100%, we've already seen her have strong reactions to the idea of being like caged up, you know? Oh yeah. Or being held on to protected. Yeah. 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 So it, it would make sense that in a more metaphorical sense, restriction would be unsettling to her. Counterintuitive. Yeah. 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 Um, that's everything I have to say about Shalon. I'm ready for Dalinar. Anything else Shalon-wise before we go on? I don't think so. No. At least for me. Okay. Alright, I'll start us off with Dalinar then. Um, on his front, you know, again, I've really not got a lot to say. It's not because I, I didn't find Dalinar interesting. I mean, it's it's mostly because everything I find interesting about Dalinar in this part has already, to some extent, like, or in some cases, uh, lengthy extent, you know, been discussed on the podcast a few times before. This has everything I like about Dalinar, you know, short of getting another look at him donning, you know, shard plate and kicking Parshandi ass. But <clears throat> he's careful, he's decisive, but he's still unstoppable. He's human. And he has very human frustrations, and he reacts to them in a human way. But he's unwavering. He enlists the, the storm for number one. He enlists the Stormfather's help in a clever way, and it serves to exemplify a point of his way back in part two of the Way of Kings, when I think he was talking to High Prince Vama, and he told the man, "I've never been known as a subtle man, Bright Lord. Merely." an effective one. And we see that on full display for this part. Yeah. And I like how in part one, when he was trying to be subtle, it wasn't working. Yeah. And only when he becomes direct, does he become effective? Agree. But I, I would also just, you know, very minor point here, but I would also like to point out what a great father he has become. I'm sorry, that scene when there's the meeting of all the scholars and the Storm Wardens and Renarin comes yeah. in and then Dalinar comes in and he just has that little, like, raises the fist. What a guy. What a guy. Yeah, he's, this is something that 20-year-old Dalinar, 30-year-old <laughs> Dalinar could never have conceived. He's come a long way. Like, do, do, uh, we got the, the flashback with um, where Renarin was around, right? That was in part two. Yeah, so the last flashback in part two was when Evie shows up on the Vedan yeah. front lines with uh, baby Renarin and toddler And he doesn't Adeline. know Renarin's name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Adelin wants to show off to his father and the soldiers. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and then he goes off. He's like, what a stupid name you gave Renarin. <laughs> like, <laughs> how did anybody let you do that? <laughs> the one who is born unto himself God, or something like that. Yeah, douchebag, man. He's such a dick. Yeah. Ugh, it's hard to read. It's so hard to to amalgamate and, this. Well, and guy the worst part of it is the that the only that love. the only affection he really shows in that scene is to Adeline. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
he doesn't show any affection to Evie. He doesn't show any affection to Renarin. That's I think, it's, I think it's very deliberate on Brandon's choice there. Uh, Brandon's part. Oh, there, you know, it's, for sure. It's yeah. so sad, but it's also appropriate in a in a yeah. disappointing way. In yeah. juxtaposition with what he's just done in the current timeline, you know, supporting Renarin, setting Renarin up, you know, letting him know, like, hey. You can do this. You can you can join the Storm Wardens if that's what you're interested in. This is not a sign of weakness. This is a sign of you identifying your strengths and acting on them. And then he turns around and supports Renarin uh, when he's in a very awkward situation. I love it. Hmm. Just, just great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got two more points about Dalinar, but I started off with our first one, so I'll give either one of you guys the chance to... Uh pitch this next one josh you have anything uh i i guess here's one um the the flashbacks were kind of strange to me in this part i don't admit, i don't know if you guys agree or not um i felt like they were <laughs> it's it's almost like hard to tell what they're what brain is trying to do with them um i don't maybe that we kind of maybe that contradicts what we just said about you know juxtaposing the two renarin situations but um <laughs> it was weird to me that we like i, I don't know you, you almost kind of feel like you keep feeling like maybe Dalinar is going to like um, Evie's going to get to him and he's going to kind of find peace and he's going to get comfortable and, and, you know, abandon this like, you know, awful life, which obviously we, we, we see where we know where it's going. Uh, so it's weird to me that it, it's kind of over and over again. It kind of flirts with like, maybe he'll like get out of this and then it kind of leaves it there. And you pick up the next flashback and he's like, no, I'm back to, you know, I can't do this. And it, it was kind of strange to me, I guess that it, it kept dragging on like that. Um, it felt like you could cut something there. I think you are nailing it on the head. Uh, my problem with the flashbacks in this section is that like this section as a whole, they feel unfocused. They, they feel like they are either in reaction to flashbacks from part one, or they are just busy setting up stuff for later flashbacks. And they don't really have an identity that connects with, the current timeline except for that one final uh that one final flashback that has a, a thematic resonance with his support of Renar in here uh but just in general where there was a, a pretty unified identity to the flashbacks in part one showing the Blackthorn showing Dalinar firmly in the grip of the thrill uh, the the savage versus okay. Dalinar in part one struggling to not be the savage anymore, struggling to be the diplomat and the king. You know, there's a unified identity to those two things in part one. Here, the flashbacks are busy trying to do so many different things that, to me, it it, it just. I mean, it, it, I guess it. It makes sense because it mirrors what the rest of part two does, in my opinion, where it's it's very transitory, it's very unfocused, and just trying to support so many different other sides of the story at the same time. But but yeah, I through two parts, haven't been a big fan of these flashbacks. Well, I I feel like I can I can possibly counter that. I'm just torn because. To do so, I'd have to give context for things that happen in part three and part four. But 
I I don't know if I quite agree that like at least with the flashbacks, I agree that the the entirety of the part of part two does have a bit of an unfocused feel, but with the flashbacks, I don't think they are all focused towards one thing. I think they are individually focused um, on different points in Dalinar's improving character. But as far as Evie goes, I, I feel like I have the perfect counter to that. But I'd have to also talk about flashbacks in part three and part four. So, well, or just just in part three, actually. I think that, so, that kind of plays into what I'm saying is that so much of what the the flashbacks here are doing is just laying groundwork for later flashbacks. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's true. You could. I mean, that's evident. You can see. You can. You can literally watch, like read each flashback and be able to say, "Oh, I, I know why this one is in here because of this later one." I can see that absolutely. Um, but you're right. As, as a whole, in part two, the flashbacks of part two themselves don't really come to a head. I just, I guess, I really, I didn't notice that, and because of that, it never bothered me. Hmm. I don't think it's. I still don't think it bothers me. But you, you, de- you definitely, both of you have a point. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just no. reading reading part two from a more critical standpoint in this has it, it's just really made me cognizant of the weaknesses in it um especially because i mean i've said this before this is only my second time reading oathbringer and it's so easy you know when i read it in one day the day it came out it's so easy for me to just be sucked in have that new book experience and 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 you glaze over the the flaws or the the stumbles inconsistencies whatever and just be like, wow, yeah, that was amazing. I love it. And now that I'm finally getting around to it, and it has been so separated, it's been almost three years. You know, it's been 35 months since I read Oathbringer to the day that we're recording this. Well, yeah. I, I don't have any movie. of that new book glow tinging my opinion anymore. So, yeah, I, I'm certainly being very critical of it, but... Okay. Okay. Uh, what I'll t- the, my last point about Dalinar here is something that's that had been starting to bother me ever since the beginning of this book, and I'm going to to voice it now. Um, and it's how it's be- it's between Dalinar and the Stormfather and their chemistry, if you will. Mm. <clears throat> this like in how Dalinar decides to treat the Stormfather in particular, it's it's that way. Like he honestly reads to me as if he completely takes this bond for granted at times and he doesn't appreciate the gravity or the respect that such a mutual bond should have dalinar is repeatedly asking favors of the Stormfather to help him in whatever clever way he wants and only it's only like he, he's dismissing the any concern or discomfort on the Stormfather's part he's downplaying risks and he rarely shows anything that kind of even resembles appreciation. Like I, I honestly feel outright sad for the Stormfather at times, which is a little odd. And it, it makes me kind of worry for the future of their bond if Dalinar keeps treating it so in such a blasé fashion. So I do think it's interesting how, like, I agree with you. I agree with you that Dalinar treats their bond in a in a blasé manner. Um, and I think it's funny that he does so because he knows at this point that yes, honor is dead. 
Tanavast has been killed, the Shard of Honor has been splintered, but the Stormfather is the remnant of Honor. The remnant yeah. of Tanavast. And and so Daladar's like bought in so wholeheartedly to this whole like honor is dead and gone, the Almighty is is dead, you know, all this. That even though he has like tangible evidence in front of him that yeah that idea of the Almighty is dead, but there's still like literally a piece or a reflection or shadow or whatever you want to call it of the Almighty literally in front of him, and he's just like treating this he's just like, What's up, bro? Can you do this for me? Yeah, no, thanks, yeah. man. Alright, peace. It's like And then on the flip side the Stormfather also totally doesn't want to be in the bond and totally doesn't want to give down our anything. Like they yeah. have, they have such a just, they have a unique relationship among all the different radiants we've seen uh, in, in where uh, mostly at least one party in the bond wants to be a team member. Here, neither neither Dalinar nor the Stormfather wants to be part of a team. They want to just do their yeah. own thing, and the other one will will go along with it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like the largest man by reputation and the largest spren <laughs> yeah. are are themselves trying to to come to grips with one another. It's it makes for an interesting read in a lot of ways. But I also, I mean, I, I'm just, I just, I, I kept shaking, finding reasons to shake my head when Dalinar would just say something to the Stormfather, or the Stormfather <laughs> would, would, would bring up a concern, or, or even just co- to complain about something, and Dalinar's just like, yeah, whatever, get over it, you know. It's it, it it's like, oh no, this can only lead somewhere bad. That's honestly where my head was at this point. I was like, oh Dalinar, you are really not, really not, doing good here. Hmm. It, it never really bothered me. I, I guess uh, I just kind of chalk it up to Dalinar's own like self-confidence and like sense of rightness and morality. Like he just like knows what he's about, knows what he's doing, and doesn't have time to be polite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be, just be the M.O. of a bondsmith. I mean, that doesn't lead one to uh, modesty, you know? Yeah. Well, no, I can't say that because Dalinar, in a lot of ways, is a very modest person. Forget I said. I actually retract that. In some ways. That's everything I have to say about Dalinar. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, shall we talk about Moash? Because I really need to talk about Moash. If you'd like to. Man, the the Moash chapters here. Very clever writing on Brandon's part. The opportunity for a redemption arc is so strong through the first few Moash points of view. Where he's put in a position that it would be very easy for him to, you know, start up like a a rebellion resistance sort of thing. You know, maybe he recognizes the plight of these Parshmen who are being abused and and he kind of connects with his own faction and, uh, you know, and turns it around for himself. I'm glad Brandon didn't do that 
for a couple of reasons. One, I think that would have been too easy. Uh, in, hmm. Instead, he goes this direction of Moash starting to be aware and honest with himself. You know, where, where he talks about cutting the Bridge 4 patch off. And he says, no, this is who I really am. I am not Bridge 4. I do not belong with them. I am the one who, you know, who wants vengeance. And, and I am a dangerous man. And all of this stuff. And on on a more metatextual level, had Brandon gone that route, then we get into some of the more like problematic white savior. Obviously, it's like mm. codified a little differently in in uh, the Stormlight Archive, but Moash and the Parshendi, like it's it's very easy to read the Alethi as white slave owners and the Parshendi as, you know, African slaves. And had Moash gone down that route of rescuing the good, the noble savages, you know, whatever, and and becoming a white savior, that comes with its own package of problems that you gotta deal with. And and Brandon pretty deftly avoided that while making Moash's character arc way more compelling in my opinion like I I mean I already dislike Moash I I disliked him by the end of Words of Radiance and I dislike him more in this part when he uh, yeah he gets to a point where he says uh, you know he's he's pulling the sledges and he says what happened at the Shattered Plains wasn't my fault He uh, he thought as he hauled the sledge I was pushed into it I can't be blamed. F*** off. <laughs> Give up your passion. Yeah, I mean... I'll you admit you that go back was... and read those scenes in Words of Radiance. Who was yeah. doing the pushing? Moash. <laughs> like, mm. he was pushed into it. nothing. He was pushing Kaladin into it. Like, the... the yeah. He starts being self-aware in the early chapters and the early points of view and he just so thoroughly flips it on its head and just dives headlong into delusion like oh mm. yeah i mean I, I was i was not entirely against moash going into this book at the end of words of radiance I thought he had a lot of valid points, even though I ultimately would, even then, have, on my first read of Words of Radiance, I still would have disagreed with him, ultimately. I still would have admitted at that point that he had some valid points. So going into Oathbringer, I had strong hopes for a redemption arc. And even through the first few of those viewpoints, where it seemed like it was going to be possible, I had a lot of hope for an epic, maybe even self-sacrificial redemption arc. And... More and more as we got these Moash viewpoints, I realized it was like, oh my god, this is not going to happen at all. Or if it does, it's not anytime <laughs> soon. This is just going darker. It's picking up in its speed as it descends. Um, so I'm just, at this point, I'm start like, I still hadn't given up hope for Moash yet mm-hmm. at this point. And that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, it's hard for me to actually, I feel like it's hard to talk about it without the context of uh, where his character arc goes. Um, yeah, I He's so interesting as a foil for Kaladin, uh, where he kind of comes 
a lot of the same situations, a lot of the, the same questions that Kaladin has to face, and he answers them a different way. Um, yeah. It's uh, it, it's certainly an interesting progression. I really enjoy, I don't know, seeing him face all these things to kind of see him lose his sense of identity, um, you know, um, at, at the start, right? He kind of, with the whole ripping off of the patch and kind of, you know, deciding he's not worth that. And then he gets to the city and they, um, he kind of, I, I love that moment when he realizes that the light eyes, they just like put the light eye guy back in control and he just like totally like loses faith in humanity at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just such a, it's just such a wonderful like moment to like watch his, his him come to that realization and just be like totally crushed by like, wow, this is done. This is, um, and then, and then it gets crushed even further when he realized like the singers aren't even perfect. Like, you know, they're mistreating their people. And it's, it's just like this, like one, one step after another of just like totally losing faith in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. When when he has that that moment where he's thinking about himself as a broken person, and he's just like, "Wait a second, it's not just me. All 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 humans are broken. Humanity is broken. Not just individually, everybody is broken, but humanity as a collective is broken. This is garbage. We don't deserve to exist. Why don't I just throw in with them? Like, it's." I, he slowly descends into what is essentially nihilism in in this part, and yeah, yeah to yeah. to frame it in kind of stormlight terms, right? It's it's the he comes to this question, and then instead of saying journey before destination, it's 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 hopeless. Like we're not going to get to the destination, so why are we bothering with the journey? Yeah, apathy. Yeah, you you can't even say he's the antithesis of the Knights Radiant, where he's he's like destination before journey. You know, it's it's just there is no destination anymore. <laughs> it's why bother with the journey at all? Like, yeah. and yeah. I mean, maybe you can go into the second part of that, and he is choosing weakness over strength, and he is choosing death before life. I, w- but, I would say he's just choosing strength, but the wrong kind of strength. I I would strenuously argue with that. I do not think he's choosing yeah. any kind of strength here. <laughs> he's because this is this is the beginning of him, like that line. What Giving happened at the shattered so planes wasn't on. my fault. I was pushed into it. I can't be blamed. Yeah. What about that? Is strong. That is that is excuses. No, it's, that it's, is it's choosing cutting to... off what he perceives as his chains, what's holding him down and stopping him from realizing his potential. No, no, no. yeah, that's his delusion. That's his excuse for it. Oh, well, but I, in it's, it reality, is I fully agree. In with reality, that. what he is strength. doing is choosing weakness. He's he's saying, "I right. didn't have the strength to ever be in charge of my life. I I am weak." That's what he's saying. I am weak. Other people right. pushed me around, so I can't no. be blamed. I think, <laughs> like he, he, he. But I absolutely agree with you that he is choosing weakness. I just what I disagree with is that he's knowingly choosing weakness. I think he's. No, I, I'm, he thinks that by cutting I'm not his, by, saying by, he's by cutting knowingly his chains, choosing he's going weakness. to get stronger. I'm not saying he's knowingly choosing it. I'm saying he's making excuses. To blind himself to the fact that he's choosing it. He's being willfully ignorant? Yeah. 
He's yeah. There's a bit of that to it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think he interprets that as strength. He's going to cut everything down that holds him down, including empathy, to make himself stronger yeah. or to advance. But, yeah, but my point is that what he believes doesn't really matter. This isn't like oh no, I like, I, I, again, I do I not ascribe to moral relativism, cowardly ass <laughs> way, and it's a big reason why I still all these years later, despite the fact that I'm so sick of the hashtag, fully agree with the Moash movement. Yes. Yeah. I, all this talk of delusion and like willful ignorance, willful ignorance is. Uh, actually making me draw kind of some comparisons between Moash and Shallan, which is kind of interesting that I've never, I don't know if I've ever really put them side by side before. Yeah. But um, I don't know. There's something there that's kind of interesting, I guess, to consider, I guess, of, you know, when you're faced with this like decision you've made and maybe you regret it. And, you Mm -hmm. know, do you, and I think, hide or, I think that's, that's spot on. And Whenever, you know, it's important to note that whenever Shallan makes progress with her bond, it's by denying her delusion. It's by denying hiding from what she's done. It's by denying her excuses and being strong and admitting, yes, I killed my father. Yes, I killed my mother. You know, like, this is... just another mirror that Brandon is holding up to his characters. Yeah. And I would argue that Moash gets stronger with every single thing that he decides to give up on. I mean, as an entity, as a threat, he gets stronger with every single thing that he gives up on. And they're both lying to themselves. Except as Shalon lies to herself, she gets weaker. And I would also argue that Moash gets weaker as well. Ah, but But we will... We can't really go into that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. All right. that's. The, I mean, I have nothing else about characters. I'm ready and excited to get into our miscellaneous and our Cosmere-wide spoiler discussion. But if there's anything else about characters, either of you want to get out of the way, now's the time. Um, no. I think that's the end of my character points. Josh, do you have anything more? Nope, that's it. All right, let's let's uh, take off the spoiler gloves and head on to, into our Cosmere spoiler and theory discussion. Right. So if you haven't read the rest of Sanderson's Cosmere up to and including Oathbringer Part 2, or what am I saying, Oathbringer Part 2, uh, the end of Oathbringer. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean... Very much the end the of time. Oathbringer. <laughs> yeah, very much the end of Oathbringer. What I'm just I'm thinking about what exactly this episode is. Yeah, I'm getting my wires crossed on the episodes that the two episodes we were supposed to record today. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> neat little detail. I'll start us off here uh, with chapter 34, Resistance. During one of Dalinar's flashback sequences, this is the one where he first talks to Queen Fen. As the vision ends, the radiant, the 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 Windrunner, uh, radiant first addresses Queen Fen as he did to Dalinar when we saw him do it in The Way of Kings. He urges Queen Fen to seek Urethiru, and he tells her, and I quote, If you have the soul of a warrior, that passion could destroy you, unless you are guided. And I love the fact that we're bringing this up right now, just after we talked about Moash, because I wrote down, Moash, anyone? Mm -hmm. If you have the soul of a warrior, that passion could destroy you. <laughs> I love that little bit. 
Yeah. Uh, and there's more to that section that I want to bring up. Okay. Um, earlier. No words for me, I see, the knight said. Very well. But should you wish to, ter- to learn true leadership, come to Urethiru. He then goes on to mention, you know, the whole, like, warriors and go to Alathela and, and all of that. And, and, you know, solve a warrior passion, destroying you, everything like that. But first, he says, should you wish to learn true leadership, come to Urethiru. Now note what she does in this scene is unite the villagers in defense. Yeah, that's why he said that. Uh Uh-huh. That's why he complimented her on her leadership. Right. But he didn't do that with Dalinar. Back in Way of Kings. Yeah, because Dalinar didn't show leadership. He showed tenacity. Exactly. So, do you think that might say something about uh, Queen Fen's potential uh, for certain orders of the Knights Radiant? Oh, damn! Drew with the bombshell! I didn't consider that. I'm not saying I think she's going to become a Bondsmith, but I, I'm i saying this I is... I thought you were going to say Windrunner a, for leadership. Yezria, sorry. Uh, well, I'm thinking about uniting, how she united the yeah the, the townsfolk in defense. Um, it would be very interesting if she were to become a Bondsmith. I'll say that. Yeah, I <laughs> almost... Yeah, yeah. Because be he, interesting as hell. he he mentions Alathela, you know, separately from Urethiru. The way he says yep. it makes it seem like if you want to be one order, go to Alathela. If you want to be another order, go to Urethiru. At least that was my interpretation of it. I can't say that was my interpretation, but I also can't argue with that. Hmm. hmm. All right. Next point, anyone, before I continue? I, I want to bring up a pet theory I've had. And okay. and this ties in with uh, Alloy of Law. And unfortunately, I don't have the the direct quote with me. But it, but it has to do with when Miles is being executed. And he has what is essentially a death rattle. And he, he talks about um, the, you know, await a and, and serve Trell and... He talks about the the men of red and gold, bearers of the final medal, and all of this, and and just something about armies of red and gold. Yes, the the language and this idea of awaiting the arrival of this inscrutable, excuse me, this inscrutable alien group, this other. And I'm gonna bring up a little quote from. From Pooley's grandfather. They'll come with light in their pockets. They'll come to destroy, but you should watch for them anyway. Because they'll come from the origin. The sailors lost on an infinite sea. That, just the wording, the structure of that, reminds me so forcibly of Miles's death rattle. And I put that in quotes. I uh, I haven't had a chance to ask Brandon about this yet. <laughs> this is on oh. um, page three hundred thirty in in the hardcover of uh, 
of Oathbringer. Does does Miles say something about to to suggest that they're like coming from this this? I my impression was that they were coming like descending in some manner. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I thought they were going to be coming through portals from a different world in a way. Which I mean, red and gold, yeah. both of which have been linked to yeah, Odia sure, as sure. his colors, right? And just gonna say the origin may may or may not have some obviously honors perpendicularity moves. Yeah, okay. but if honors perpendicularity comes from the origin, <laughs> so I de- on on Pooley's interlude. I like, I still want to talk about this, and I actually totally forgot to write down anything about. So I'm just I'm riffing here completely right now. But I absolutely noticed and loved the fact that there is this this mysterious entity, this alien uh, group that is supposed to and apparently prophesied to return, and you need to be vigilant and watch for such. Um, I kind of likened it not to get into spoilers to any to to the, for the Wheel of Time in particular. This is not a spoiler to say. It's kind of reminding me a bit of the Shan Chan. Oh, I could see that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's where I went. But the first really, time I that's read it. all I'd, I'd considered. That's the extent of everything I'd considered about these. I was like, okay, there's another civilization. There's another big player, a major player that we have yet to meet, and they could they could be human. They could not even be human. But I had nothing else to go on as far as linking it to Miles' death rattle. I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's like I hadn't considered the two even in context with one another until you just did. I still don't really see it. Let me throw more 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 fuel in the fire of the idea that they Hell yeah. coming from above. Hell this yeah. is something I've actually noticed um, a little while ago. Um, I like that it says the last line here that he says it's a, a new paragraph there, and Pooley says they'll they'll arrive when the night is darkest. Um. And um, it seems like the word hate comes in here at some point. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I might be missing the, there might be even even better quote in here somewhere about it, but um, it's important to remember that on Roshar, uh, the moons, there's a, there's a period of the night where there are no moons in the sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one, there's an hour when the night is darkest. Oh, Um, wow. I forgot about that. Just kind of, I don't know. It pulls some like, astronomical like notions into this passage to me. Yeah. Um, it, Cause it's, it's easy to read it as like the sea. It's like the, the ocean that they're like going to come sailing across the ocean. But I, I did read that in a different way recently, you know, a little while back and wondered if, if it uh, could be something more, if, if the endless sea is the Cosmere, you know, the stars. Yeah. Yeah. That was my thought. So badass. The line I specifically highlighted was the sailors lost on an infinite sea, because that is suggestive. Oh my God. You guys are both (laughs) blowing my mind apart right now. What if there's like this nomadic people that's just stranded in and wandering the stars? What, what if there were what Rob, Rob, let's, let's, play a pure hypothetical here what if there were <laughs> okay hit me with a a a, a race or group of people who have been nomads going from place to place in the cosmere <laughs> perhaps calling them lands with golden hair 
<laughs> who on, who may be described as men of red and gold? Yeah, okay. Uh... <laughs> oh boy, now I'm concerned. I, th- I really, really like the Iriali, though. <laughs> Do you? Because they seem to have sided yeah. with the Voidbringers in this oh, conflict. they did, didn't they? <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Those traitorous pricks. <laughs> or was that the Rerans? Well, the they're, they're, Rera is like part of the Eerie. Remember, they have like three oh, monarchs. They sovereign. They have like three Rera. monarchs. Oh, okay. and, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. Damn. If, if Roshar is the fourth speaking. land, might Skadriel Yeah, they still have the three fifth? lands left to go. <laughs> oh sh! Drew McCaffrey, you bastard! Did you come up with that yourself? I did. Son of a bitch! That is that is good. I really really like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, are we done with that point? Can I move on? Uh, anything Josh, else? Josh, do you have anything more to add on that? No, I think I think uh, that's good. <laughs> okay. 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 Shall we finally discuss the epigraphs? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I wrote down a whole rant here. I'm just going to rant for about a minute, minute and a half about everything that we learned during these epigraphs. And if there's anything I missed, let me know, okay? Both of you. Um, so, <clears throat> as has been confirmed, we have three authors of these letters. And that was mm-hmm. a, something that took me an embarrassingly long time to, f- to figure out. Um, these are responses to apparent pleas from Hoyd, penned by the Vessels of Harmony, Endowment, and an avatar of autonomy. Pachi. Right? Pachi. There she is. He is. It is. And among the things they? that we learn is... They the, are. Sorry? They are? There they are. Yes. <laughs> among the things that we learn in the name of another... It is, sorry, is the name of another vessel. We have Ulida, mm-hmm. who apparently really screwed up somehow. We learned that Aeona and Sky, who took up the shards of devotion and dominion respectively, violated a pact not to take up residence on a planet with another shard. At least that's what that's what's implied. That's why I believe. Um, in fact, apparently, so few shards, to use air quotes, have kept to this original agreement. And we're not done there. We learn of the existence of some place called Obrodai. There is another avatar of autonomy being set up there. We learn that not all of the shards are opposed to Odium's particular ideas or his inclinations. That is terrifying. And we learned that our favorite Terrasman is starting to worry about his ability to affect change as he struggles to maintain the balance with the two shards that he holds in Twain, as well as his diminishing capabilities that result from such. I'm just like, this is such a contextual info dump, and I ate up every word of it. I loved it. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a little deeper here. <clears throat> Let's do it. So Crazy. as you mentioned, we have a new uh, vessel's name, Ulida. Yes. Good riddance. And and we're gonna dig into some I'm gonna say pseudo canon. It's not like confirmed canon yet, because it hasn't appeared in any published books yet. But it will eventually 
unless something very drastic changes. Uli Da is of the third race from Yolan. The original planet, you know, that humanity came from, where Hoyt is from, where all the vessels of the shards came from. There were three sapient races, humans, dragons, and Shodel. And Uli Da is a Shodel. And her name, I mean, you can you can just think of the the etymology of her name and you know Uli Da Shodel, you know. Uh and I think there may be an aspect of perhaps racism on the part of uh, endowments Ooh. vessel here in Ooh. in her. This is this is me going a little more into like some theory crafting, but but just mm, I feel like there's something that she has a reason. To yeah, that she's not a big fan of Shodell. <laughs> um, yeah, or maybe just of Uli Da. Maybe Uli Da herself is the issue. Maybe she did something. It's it's possible. It's possible, but. Uh, but then we're going to go on to, to the second letter. Patchy and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Raise is contained, and we care not for his prison. Indeed, we admire his initiative. Hello, I'm a red flag. Nice to meet you. I have been, <laughs> since I read the White Sand prose in 2013... I have been championing the theory that Trell was autonomy and that Trell is doing the work of Odium because Odium is afraid of Harmony because Harmony has two shards. And even though Harmony has some you know, inhibitions, some limitations, from Word of Brandon, we know Odium is scared of, of a direct confrontation there. And so, if Odium perhaps had, oh, I don't know, an ally like Bavadin, who apparently is included in the grudge Hoid has with Rays, that Odium may be able to convince Autonomy to go deal with Harmony, and may have given, uh, you know, some some resources, some. Odium spren, perhaps some Svrakis, if we're going to dig into the Elantrian lore. Yeah, uh, and and uh, yeah. So I'm going to leave that for now. We'll discuss that more in depth whenever we get to Mistborn Era Two. But I have one more thing from uh, from the second letter, and that is Obro die. Obviously, we don't know anything about this world. <laughs> but, as a Star Wars Expanded Universe mega-nerd... <laughs> oh no. Okay, where's this going? Obro Dai reminds me forcefully. There is a world in in the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which is now like Legends. I don't know if it's been brought back into canon. I kind of doubt it. But it's called Obroa Sky. O-B-O-R-A-S-K-A-I. And it's a library world. And the moment I read Obro Die, I was like, huh. And I really want to know how big a Star Wars Expanded Universe fan Brandon Sanderson was. Because I I just I would be super interested. I'd be super interested to see if there's any sort of inspiration there. 
I guess it's probably unlikely, but it, I don't know. I almost wonder if there's like a, a mutual root for both of those, like some. That, I don't know. Yeah, that because I be. mean, I feel obligated to mention that Kaladin has a brother called Oroden. I mean, that's also close, but that clearly really has nothing to do. I don't. I think, right? I mean, it's just uh, etymologically speaking, similar. Aesthetically speaking, similar. But I mean, uh, Obrodai, you know, uh, Orodin, and I'm already forgetting. Um, uh, something's Oro Sky. What was it? Sorry, Obroa Sky. Obroa Sky. Yeah, you know, Obroa Sky, Obrodai, Oroden. These, I mean, just very similar words. I don't really see any connection between them. I mean, I don't, I don't see a connection between Oroden and Obrodai, other than that they start with O. Really? Yeah, and then but the but Obrodai and Obroa Sky to me have have a. a, a similarity but i am as i said i'm way beyond the bounds of speculation at this point so (laughs) (laughs) still something you wanted to at least you know toss at us see what we'd make of it right yeah yeah exactly yeah any other uh miscellaneous or cosmere wide spoiler points before i continue with mine i have a couple more uh well let me just uh on that second letter i think the big thing there was the idea of avatars did we we didn't really cover that much that was really kind of introduced here um yeah yeah or There's not too much to say about it, except that it's something to keep your eye on, I think. Um, was it introduced here, or was it introduced in Arcanum Unbounded? I can't mm, remember. Maybe you're right. I can't remember. Or was it no, just, no, in, the, was the it just a word of Brandon after Arcanum Unbounded came out? And I, then he I solidified it. I would have to go back and check. Um. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Rob, Rob, go ahead with your next your next point. Okay. All right. Um, I just want to really, really, really quickly discuss this magnificent burn that Yasna Kolin tossed at you know Meridus Amaram. Um, oh Lord, my sides! I'm still three years later. I'm finding it hard to believe that Yasna's insult was <laughs> as brilliant and as dirty as i remember it being but oh my lord it absolutely is every single time and this is part of the reason why i am such a fanboy of yasna i mean i'll admit her her incivility at first is a little bit off-putting even though i know how much of a pos amaram is but immediately we have reason to to realize that you know amaram was kind of asking for it especially in laying hands on her as he did and then refusing to let go in that moment he absolutely deserved everything she gave him and so i found it to be um quite enjoyable quite enjoyable but god that burn though it was so it was it was it was just so i don't even need to explain <laughs> what i'm talking about because anybody who's read it is feeling exactly what i'm feeling right now it's brandon sanderson my goodness i i mean i was i loved it objectively speaking it's hilarious yeah. i just it was so shocking to me i was like <gasps> oh i loved it okay well i have one i, I had i had shalon's reaction to that go ahead sorry uh, so, in in Rock's point of view, in Lunamore's point of view, mm, yeah, yeah, he's he's talking about how he chatted with Leighton, who was still shaken by their experience with the Dark God below Urethiru. 
obviously the Midnight Mother, one of the unmade. Mm -hmm. Powerful god that had been, and very vengeful. There were legends of such things in the peaks. Lunamore's great-great-great-grandfather had met with one while traveling the Third Divide. Excellent and important story, which Lunamore did not share today. <laughs> so first off, about screw that. you, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a little bit. I mean, it's the kind of it's the it's the kind of like oh you got you you nice trick there. Okay, oh it hurts so good. Yeah, it, it hurts so but, good, doesn't? But it? I, so like I was reading through that paragraph and I was like. Oh, oh, unmade, uh, well, great, great, great grandfather, huh? Yeah, I don't know if that's, you know, that, that might be a tall tale. And then, excellent and important story, which Lunamore did not share. That moment I was like, okay, yes, he actually met an unmade. <laughs> and it's not one of the unmade we know about. Because otherwise, Brandon totally would have dropped a tidbit. He wants to keep this hidden. He met, like, Digonarthus or something like that. You know, one of these, yeah. one of these we haven't seen. He took... Yeah, just <laughs> this is this it's is not, Brandon. Necessarily have to be nose at you there. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an unmade, does it? It could just be a powerful spren like being. Yeah, I mean the 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 horny just worships spren. Don't I don't they? know the way I mean, the way it's be... laid out. The progression of these sentences where he he goes with you know the dark god and he goes powerful god that had been and very vengeful. There were legends mm -hmm. of such things in the peaks. So, yeah, so but I, but I guess there's the connector that to me indicates like okay, especially because like what other spren are that powerful on Roshar? But I, I'm just walking it back because like he also calls Wit a god if I'm not mistaken, back in Words of Radiance. So yeah, I think that does. they're constantly like yeah. what are the Horn Eater gods uh, is hard to. I'm hesitant to it assume more, that it's an unmade. I, yeah, it's can, it's it a definitely a, a connection than, there, but. Okay, well then I want to know what the hell this other thing, this non-unmade that is yeah. on a level with Hoyd is. <laughs> Was it Mraze? Yeah. Was is just... Mraze like... I mean, clearly Jeez. he's got several kinds of... I mean, for all we know, the Horningers could worship chickens. I mean, well, no, what, who's to say? This is very clearly not talking about a chicken. <laughs> I, I know. I, 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 I recognize that. I just Unless mean, it's like, a really it depends special on what ADR. the Horningers yeah, well, classify as gods. But yeah. but I, I agree with you. I, I follow, I'm following on Drew's side here because there is that contextual link. There is that, or I should say, that subjective link. Dark god, powerful god, other gods like yeah. it. it. It does seem that I, I'm like 95% sure Drew's right on this and, one. Yeah. And just the fact that he refuses to share the story. I'm just like, Brandon yeah. is so clearly he's like, he's like holding up he has these... a card with the you know, the face hidden, and he's like, hey, everybody, look at this card that I have. I'm not going to show yeah, it to you. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and this, this may have served better as even a style point, what I'm about to say here, but oh. Brandon has these little quirks in his writing where sometimes his main character, you can tell, he will, Brandon will proscribe your reaction by what his main character is doing. Sometimes when Pattern drops a particularly juicy little tidbit, or especially when Windle drops a particularly yeah, juicy yeah. little tidbit, um, and then our, our Radiant, our point of view character, suddenly and inexplicably gets completely distracted by something else so they can't stop and dwell on it. <laughs> you know, and I think this is another, kind of another one of those times, even though Rock clearly is just reserving it intentionally. It's, it's similar. It's just Brandon Sanderson thumbing his nose at yeah. us from years in the past. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Josh, do yep. you have anything? And I love it. I mean, I like it. Uh, I mean, while we're on Rock, we also have the groundwork laid here for Rock. Um, his whole like family history thing, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Trying to figure out what his what his role amongst the Horn Eater people is, especially at the end of Oathbringer, after he is the the first uh, one, the first Horn Eater to have a shard blade, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's like he. This particular chapter is is like one of the most uh, unreliable narrator moments in, in all of Stormlet Archive. Like even including some of the Shallan chapters, like he just refuses to explain even internally. You know, Ugh. yeah. My second last point, and this is really the only one of those two that has anything to discuss. Um, it, actually, it still doesn't. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna uh, gloat here for a second. That's what I'm gonna do. In the months uh, leading up to Oathbringer's release, I posted several times across uh, different theory groups that I believed Shallan's brother, her oldest brother Helleran, was a proto Skybreaker, if not an actual Skybreaker by this point, by the time that he was killed. And there were a lot of people who dismissed that idea. One in whom, one of whom in particular decided to get incredibly snobby and arrogant. Obviously, I'm not going to call them out by name. Uh, but they claimed that I had next to no basis upon which to make that argument. And that it could just be a few coincidences lining up. And they told me that I was definitely jumping the gun. So I challenged them on the result that we'd get in Oathbringer. And then they said... Even if I should turn out right, it's still not enough evidence upon which to formulate that theory. And so by default, that theory has to be incorrect. Or it was something, it was like three, four years ago. I don't remember really the, the fine details of the conversation. But it's been three years since the book came out. And boom, chapter 40 hits. Questions, peaks, and inferences. We get the note to Shalon from Marais. And... I pulled out my phone to write in the Oathbringer release reactions file, because I figured we'd be recording this podcast episode someday. I wrote, oh, what's up? Blank, blank. I put down his name. If I didn't have enough incorrect uh, information, then why did I guess it correctly? Uh, snap, mic drop. I, I mean, so many of us called that. Helleran was indeed not just involved with the Skybreakers, but he was a proto-Skybreaker himself. He was an initiate. Yeah. I love I love these Rob gloating sections. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. listened to your uh, Words of Radiance part uh, four or whatever today where you, you gloated about something else, so it was kind of like back-to-back. <laughs> you heard about... How did you hear that today? Because I just did the censor list for that one. Oh, it would have been... Uh, well, maybe it was the one before. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was whatever one was last. Okay, um, I was going to say, is that one already out? And I listened to a three-hour file uh, for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. All right. Um, uh, my last... Uh, my, on, that's let how me, long uh, that one was. I'll, let me cut in. Um, go, go for it, dude. While we're doing, while we're doing pet theories, um, mm, I, had, I, had a, I had a wild theory that Hilarion might still be alive, but that, that definitely Same. got shut down. Um, yeah. that's not where I'm going though. Um, I've got, I've got a fun pet theory that I love to harp on. It's, it's kind of dumb and, and mostly meaningless. Um, but I think it's a, I, uh, have you heard about Tara in Erythiru? Okay. No. Okay. Have you heard this? I, so I just like two days ago, maybe saw a post where somebody was talking about like potential, 
was probably on Reddit where somebody was talking about. In fact, yes, it was. It was on Reddit. It might have been me. And it was your comment. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was yep. your comment. <laughs> uh, I did not. This is not. I did not come up with this. Um, I saw. I saw it myself on Reddit sometime shortly after Oathbringer was released. I think. Um, but I just. I. I'm just like. I love it. So. Uh, let me um, take you to Oathbringer chapter 44. Yeah, paint uh, the picture for me. This is uh, when uh, Shalon, when Vale and our guys are in the bar with uh, Ishna the first time, and she's like teaching them stuff and how to make observations. And Gaz takes note of a certain woman and says, like, oh, uh, there's a Thalen woman over at the bar, and, and they ask some details, and he can't remember much else about her. And then when it's Shalon's turn, and she goes off on her whole long monologue of all the stuff she remembers. Uh, one of the things she says is she she refers back to this person. Um, she says the, um, uh, the older one is trying to pick up the woman Gaz noticed. She's not Thalen, but she's wearing a Thalen dress with a deep violet blouse and forest green skirt. I don't like the pairing, but she seems to. She's confident and used to playing with the attention of men. Uh, but But I think she came here looking for someone because she's ignoring the soldier and keeps glancing over her shoulder. Um, you wouldn't really think very much of this. However, all the way along in Oathbringer chapter 112, uh, we get a Kaladin sort of pseudo flashback where we, for the first time, meet Tara. And uh, Kaladin describes her, he says, uh, Tara had been special, the dark-eyed daughter of an assistant quartermaster. She had grown up helping with her father's work. Though she was 100% Alethi, she preferred to dress in an old-fashioned Thalen style. She'd wear a button shirt underneath, often in a bright color, brighter than most dark eyes could afford. Um, he goes on to explain that um, she is kind of, I guess, a lot of the the guys that she's uh, uh, she's like taking their measurements, the soldiers, and and uh, and they kind of think she's like hitting on them, and she's kind of teases them that you know that's she's used to them kind of to flirting with her and kind of having to turn them down. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Goes on and on. So, anyways, there's there's so many like little like weird comparisons there between these two, the way these two characters are described. Uh, both with her um, not being Thalen, but wearing Thalen clothes. It's the only time we've ever huh. seen anybody described that way. Uh, and not just that, but the way that she wears kind of some like weird combinations of colors. Yeah. Um, and she's also not putting up the, you know, with any of the crap with these uh, flirty soldiers that are around her. So um, I think that this is Tara that we see in Oathbringer chapter 44. I have no idea why. I don't know why she's there, what she's doing, if she'll come back later. I've, I've kind of wondered if um, she'll pull, be pulled back in the story and Brandon kind of seeded this in there for some reason. I don't know. But I, the, if, if it's a coincidence, it's like wild. It's it's really weird one. Um, I feel like it's got to be her. Um, but I don't know why. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm sold. I just like read a little ahead in 112 and she's described... She wore green today under a brown skirt, her black hair tied back in a tail. Like, specifically calling out two different colors of shirt and skirt. Yep. Thalen style. Oh. It goes completely over your head when you read it because. Because it's like. There's, no, there's nothing really there. 800 pages the, apart, too. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a lot of really strikingly, like, weirdly similar comparisons between these two descriptions hmm. and um so i think she's in earth three. i don't i wondered if um if uh, she was going to come back in and kind of be a love interest for kaladin and uh this was kind of brandon's 
kind of teasing like, oh, look, she's in the city already. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Well, the next time I read hmm. Rhythm of War, I'm going to keep an eye out. I, I, I'm yeah. totally on board with this theory now. <clears throat> I think it's a giant, but still suspicious as hell coincidence. Yeah. I mean, Rob, you, you've said so see. many times in the past, it is hard we'll to assign coincidences You're, to Brandon Sanders. You are 155.6% correct <laughs> about that. I have said that so many times. Ooh. I'm just going to toss the coin on this one and, 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 and land on, just for once, on the side of coincidence, because I feel like I have to do that once in a while. <laughs> it's, it's worth noting that when people have asked about where, what she's up to or where she's at, Brandon has raffled it. Has he? Um, he did. He did one time say he raffled it. He didn't just say oh something unimportant. No, he he raffled it uh, two or three times, Ooh. I think. And then he he has That's said that sus. he has said that um, someone asked, "Are we ever going to find out about her?" And he said yes at some point uh, many years ago. Maybe he's oh, changed so his mind. We still have to learn more about her then. Maybe, maybe not. Unless that was what we learned in this okay. part. Okay. Or in, in uh, Oathbringer. Okay. So. Okay, I'm definitely going to be paying attention. Good yeah, to that I like to get on my soapbox though. and share that one because like not many people know it, but I just no. think it's a really like cool, really weirdly random. Yeah, I'm glad you brought thing. that up. Seriously, like I I like to think that I'm pretty plugged in on Cosmere theories, <laughs> and I have never heard about that theory before seeing your comment on Reddit like two days ago. So probably nobody talks about it because it's so inconsequential. Like if it is her, it's like oh great, cool. Then what? But, yeah. Well, this is this is apparently that. the episode of obscure Cosmere theories because now we have my uh, <laughs> men of red and gold Puli Iriali theory and our Terra and Urethiru theory. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Um, my last point, and it's just a a little uh, aesthetic point here. I love this throwaway line. That Brandon wrote this very uh, self-aware and cheeky—I should say tongue-in-cheek line—that he just threw into the Alista interview yes. mm-hmm. um, about you know mm-hmm. exactly what I'm going to say already, don't you? About this trend in fantasy books: the sequel always has to be bigger. Yeah, the sheer irony. I mean, I just had to—I had to bring it up. I'm surprised neither of you have so far. So thank you for letting me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's the last point I have for today. But that just—you could feel Brandon laughing as he wrote that. It's awesome. Oh yeah, and uh, to be honest, it almost feels like a Hoyd epilogue thing. What? Well, yeah. in, in a weird yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I will say, I liked Alista. I, I was. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that little yes. bit with her. I. I. She's endearing, yeah, isn't she? she? Is. I hope she has a good life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't that invested, but I agree. I agree. I mean, she's in... There's some crazy stuff happening as we leave her. Yeah, right? I mean, like, she's... Yeah, she's she's in, in, a, in a pretty hot spot political, you know, area and on Roshar in the middle of a desolation. I hope, I hope she has a good life. I'll say that. I hope she gets to read her her trashy erotica and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I hope the best for her. Yeah. That's everything I have to say about Oathbringer Part Two. I'm ready to go into the final draft. Any other final draft? Draft. With, Any other final thoughts before I Yeah, with, with her so um with her in mind, really really small thing. I think this is just really cool. Um attention to detail in the artwork. 
Um, oh yeah, you guys already brought. Yeah. This is um, this is just kind of an obscure thing um, with Alista. She's she's talking there about like Don Chant and about the 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 script that they write with, right? And there's she's talking about how like there's this um, transition between Don Chant to like their modern writing, yep. um, and she specifically mentions like a proto Thalen. Uh, oh yeah, whatever something or other. Um, this is really obscure, but uh, at the very beginning of Oathbringer, there's a um, but right before chapter one, there's a kind of a weird, really stylized map of Roshar with a Rithru in the center. It's got a, a dragon and a lion on there, and it's showing um, some people like coming through from Shadesmar. Presumably, it's kind of foreshadowing humans coming from Ashen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look around the border of that map, the, the around like the globe. Next to each like uh, nation, the Silver Kingdoms are all on there. Oh. Um, there's some like little squiggles out in the ocean, the squiggles that are not just watery water lines. Oh my gosh, I've never even noticed these before. Yeah, um, we we've actually they actually we've like there's like translation threads like people trying to like figure out anytime there's like script yeah in the books there's people trying to figure out what it is. Um, those are the Silver Kingdom names. And they kind of, they use a little bit of kind of a little bit of like the Thalen um, writing script, but, um, but not exactly. It's kind of a mix of like the glyph phonemes and the, um, the Thalen. So that's uh, an, ex- an example of the script that she's talking about or, or something along those lines. Anyways, see fun, fun, obscure fact for you. This is why we brought you on nice. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When when no. when Rob and I are, are getting deep deep into the Cosmere lore, and I'm like, no no, we need to bring on one of the seventeenth shard guys to put us in our places. <laughs> I, I like the I like the obscure stuff. I don't. It's it's. I love the attention to detail and the artwork that they put. It. It's yeah. not just like that. They're just like putting some pretty pictures in the book, but that uh, they really work and collaborate with one another to get something in there that's like so thoughtful. So, yeah, that's, cool. that's that's and they slide it in. They slide it in there. Like yeah, saying that's something that I've been like working on for the longest time. I didn't really pay attention to the artwork that much until White Sand, and then I realized, wait a second, if this is the detail they're putting in something that's not even directly Dragon Steel related, you know, like like under the the iron fist of Isaac Stewart. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know what? What is what is going on in the artwork that Isaac himself is overseeing? So, but you know, I haven't even looked at Oathbringer since you know 2017. So it's uh, it's something that I've been you know paying more attention to in 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 other books you know that Brandon's released. But but yeah, th- that's extremely interesting and i wonder like have have people like cracked the actual structures of those little glyphs like yeah i mean as much as we is with what limited with what's there yeah uh, for the most part yeah that is that is pretty freaking ridiculous that's 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 <laughs> up there with with the the charters who who cracked the words of radiance <clears throat> like was it chapter 88 yeah. <laughs> Cracked it that, like, two code? hours that after the book number? came out. Like, <laughs> Gosh, The fact that there are those people out there is so 
it's inspiring, but it's also intimidating. It's like, oh man. Oh, it's not intimidating to me. I just, I'll just coast on their coattails. <laughs> well, it's not just intimidating; it's slightly intimidating. But it's, it's, it's many other things. It's like it's inspiration. It's like holy crap! Yeah, yeah. All the people, and I can say this because I'm like I'm one of them. All the people that are like that are just like really weird, really obsessive about like little <laughs> things, and then like patterns. Don't worry, you've got to beat it. You've got to beat it in other places. Don't See, worry. I'm yeah. lazy, so. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else There's will do no that. way I'm putting you know. in the effort to crack that code in Orcs of Radiance. <laughs> I'm like, I'll, I'll let, I'll let all yeah, of you super fans do it, do it for me. and then I'll <laughs> theory craft based on what you translate. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. That's me too. Thank. Yep. All right. Well, uh, but, is uh, is that our uh, concluding point on Oathbringer? Shall we? I believe. It shall is. we head into the final draft? I'm good for the final draft. If both of you guys are good. All right. Go for it. Okay, so I'll give I'll start us off here. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a little more than a couple of weeks ago at this point, a few weeks ago during Words of Radiance, I brought on a drink that I was excited to bring on, and then I realized last minute that it doesn't quite fit, and I went on um, as to why it doesn't fit. But this week, I realized as I was going through, it was just earlier today. I was listening to Oathbringer Part Two while I was welding, and it was I'm fairly certain it was during the rock interlude. I realized that this thing that I wanted to bring on for the thematic tie-in um, actually didn't happen in Words of Radiance at all. It happened in Oathbringer Part 2. And I'm going to read a quote now from Oathbringer Part 2, and it is this. And again, I think this is from Rock's point of view. I didn't write down exactly which chapter this was, but... <clears throat> quote, Is water I boiled in Kremlingsen before serving them last night. Eth spurted out his mouthful of drink, <laughs> then looked to the cup aghast. What? Rock said. You ate the Kremlings easily. But this is like their bath water, Eth complained. Chilled, Rock said, with spices. His good taste is bath water, Eth said. I brought today the closest thing that we have to Horn Eater Shiki. I figured this is a slightly fishy tasting iced beverage, cold beverage, and as Rock said, it has spices added to it, thanks to um, <clears throat> Punio, I believe, one of one of uh, Lopin's many cousins. I brought an extra spicy Mott's Clamato Caesar. Actually, I brought a couple of them, and I drank both of them over the course of this podcast. And so, <clears throat> Caesars are not something I've liked for a long time. I railed against them for many, many years, and it wasn't until recently that I grudgingly picked up the taste for them, and they are delicious to me now. I love them. So I was drinking a vodka Caesar. Extra spicy. I mean, I'm well, glad then. you like them. Thank you. The idea of that drink <laughs> revolts me, so... <laughs> <clears throat> can I can I hey. really quickly just read some of these revolting ingredients here? <laughs> Water, vodka, tomato paste. Oh. I think those last two alone. Vodka and tomato paste... Uh, glucose, fructose, vinegar, monosodium glutamate, of course, salt, citric acid, molasses, spices, red chili pa- paper, pepper, seasonings, and then this is where it gets really weird and funky. Anchovies, onion, natural flavor, <laughs> garlic, dried clam broth. <laughs> so we have dried clam broth and onion and anchovies and garlic and vinegar and tomato paste. 
and a bunch of other that things. That is... In a drink. Why no. would, Why is that delicious? It should not be. On paper, it should be an abomination. It should melt the paper just writing those ingredients down. Whichever person first made that drink... Is a lunatic. Uh, ...should be imprisoned for life. And I and if yep. they're if that person is dead, I hope they were imprisoned for life after that. <laughs> yeah, I remember at one point telling my brother that uh, I hope whoever invented the vodka Caesar was shot. But <laughs> after like five or six tries, it started to grow on me, and now oh. that I've had them like twenty times, it's like there's something mealy about them, something oh. that's like fuller and spicier and. Almost like drinking a, a legitimate meal that gets you drunk. So, I'm grudgingly start to starting to like the vodka Caesars, and I finally had the opportunity to link it in with something that I thought I remembered in Words of Radiance. Okay, well, well, that is that is a choice you made. <laughs> yeah, that is a choice I made. Fight me. <laughs> All right, uh, Josh, what are you drinking tonight? Um, so, I've got one. This is um, a local brewery. Uh, it's like a five ten minute drive from here in uh, Taylor's, South Carolina. Um, they're called Thirteen Stripes Brewery. Um, they have a lot of um, all their most of their beer is um, and it's kind of themed. They've got like a American Revolution theme going on with with their with their beer. Makes oh, sense yeah. from um, the name. This one's actually yeah yeah. Yep. So um, this one um, was actually a collaboration with. Um, fell and fair it says which as far as i could gather was a is a production company i, I don't really know what um hmm. what that what that means fell exactly but hmm. um so it's it's a little bit different it's uh it's not quite an american revolution theme on it it's kind of a more of a medieval thing going on here but anyways it's a an an 80 shilling ale which i uh, i had never even heard that term before um a scottish thing i guess so that's uh, that's very interesting so one of the biggest breweries in fort collins colorado is odell brewing company they're mm-hmm. one of the most successful largest craft breweries in the united states and their flagship beer is called 90 shilling and it is a scotch ale so um it was good i enjoyed it um but it um this is, this is actually pretty cool. It's uh, named after a quote from Tolkien um, that they've got on the back. Oh, um, all all their all their beer has like a, a quote on it, and and most of them are like the other one I have is like a, it's got like a Thomas Paine quote or whatever. Nice. Um, this one had a, a Tolkien quote. Um, it says, "War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all." But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Um. And uh, it reminded me of a quote from Dalinar in this uh, in this part, uh, where he says, uh, l- "Let me say this: we, if, if we can be certain of one thing, it is the morality of defending our homeland. Um, I don't ask that you go to war idly, but I will ask that um, ask you to protect." Um, and he goes on. So, anyways, uh, it is called uh, this beer is called War Must Be. That oh. is oh oh, 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 that is good. Heck yeah. So. That especially with all these Dalinar flashbacks. That no kidding. Yeah, oh yeah, and that too. Recurring and theme. I wish I could show everybody like the 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 picture on here. It's got this like uh, medieval like warrior guy with an axe. Oh raised. yeah. I don't know if you guys oh can see God. it, but it's he's he's giving off some Blackthorn vibes for sure. He is. That is awesome. So it's pretty that's, cool. That's a good entry. Heck, Damn. Heck hey. yeah. Okay. Well, I am. All right, Drew. I am drinking a beer. 
not from Odell, but from the other mega popular craft brewery in Fort Collins, Colorado, New Belgium Brewing. This is a Chinese five-spice sour ale aged for 12 months in oak fooders, 7.5% alcohol. Uh, So this is... Uh, yeah, single fooder aged dark sour ale, dry spiced with a blend of Galangal root, fennel, Saigon cinnamon, star anise, and Szechuan peppercorn. And it is delicious. This is one of my favorite sour beers ever created. And I am a little sad that I'm drinking it right now because this is my last bottle of it. This bottle is two and a half years old. They they made it once for a very, uh, very limited event. Uh, Lost in the Woods 2018 at New Belgium Brewing Company. Um, yeah, like I said, this is just absolutely delicious. And it, this is the beer for Moash in, in this part. And oh, his no. musings. Oh, no. This beer is called... Life at the bottom. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, this it's also is really sour. Bottom. It is very sour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I like both of those. Now I feel like a bitch bringing on the vodka Caesar. That's pretty I legit, like though. I don't know. I like the meta, the meta choice there. Yeah. Go for the uh, the horn eater. Going for an in world drink. <laughs> So <laughs> the horn eater shiki, which still I need to I, I need to 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 draw a point to say that I recognize that shiki is brown. And it's, that, that that's the the major difference. The vodka Caesar is red, but I mean as far as the taste goes, I think it's about as close as I'm going to get. I'm not going to find any Kremlings myself to boil right. and then add spices. <laughs> and to. and I don't think uh, I don't think Rock has tomato paste, but <laughs> yeah, no, he probably doesn't have that accessible. Not yeah. yet. I don't imagine it was alcoholic, though, was it? Like, uh, Again, yeah, I don't think the shiki was alcoholic. Refreshing though. after a long day of practice, they all drink, sit yeah. down and... <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a session shiki. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Low ABV. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But, uh, so, yeah, I think that wraps us I up I think it today. does. So this has been episode 90 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we will be going right on into part three of Oathbringer, so check that out. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. We've got a bunch of fun benefits, and all of those proceeds go to our support team, Danny, our artist, and Pat, our sound engineer. So consider supporting it if you are enjoying the show. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Joshua Harkey. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. So, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.